Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and here the guys will be in chapter 19, looking at the laws concerning property boundaries and laws concerning witnesses and bearing false witness. If you have not already signed up for the Theopolis app, we have a deal for you. You can use the code THEOPOLITAN to receive your first month free when you sign up today for that app. So head to app.theopolisinstitute.com, create yourself an account there using the code THEOPOLITAN. You'll receive that first month free, and you can go ahead and begin enjoying all of the content that is behind that paywall without having to pay anything for your first month. And after you sign up there on the app website, you can download the app from your app store, log in, and then you're good to go. A few recent releases include James Jordan's Lectures on the Life of Abraham, an ebook from Peter Lightheart on his notes going through the book of the Song of Songs, and The Dominion Trap as an ebook from James Jordan. With that, we really hope that you enjoyed this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing Deuteronomy 19. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James Bijan. The whole band is back. Brian Motes, the band director, is in the background, making sure that we all play our instruments and come in on cue. And then when we don't, he'll smooth it out and make it sound like a, well, it's, you know, I'm changing metaphors now, but like a symphony. So it's not not a band anymore. It's an orchestra, a very small orchestra, kind of a quartet. And, uh, Brian's going to be making sure that the quartet sounds right. Uh, We are in the middle of a podcast series on the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, We are in chapter 19. uh, And as I've said repeatedly in the beginning of each of these podcasts, we're in a section of Deuteronomy that's dealing with uh, the 10 words, extrapolating on the 10 commandments, uh, going into detail, looking at different facets and revealing different facets of what the 10 commandments are about. Uh, And, uh, Chapter 19, which we began talking about last in the last episode, is the beginning of the second half of the Decalogue. It's part of the sixth word section that deals with issues related to killing, murder, violence, and uh, and related issues. As we'll see uh, in our discussion today, it broadens out to include other kinds of concerns. We didn't we didn't quite get through uh, chapter 19 last time. We talked about the cities of refuge. And that section ends at verse 13. So we're going to cover the last eight verses of chapter 19 in just a moment. But I'm hoping we get into the beginning of chapter 20 because I want I want to say my introductory comments about that. Um, again, this is part of the six-word section, thou shalt not kill, uh, has been taken by some Christians to require a pacifist stance, uh, anti-war, and and uh, 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 particularly when, when that commandment is filled out with the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus teaching on the on the t- on the ten words and on the Torah uh, and uh, nonviolence and non-resistance is taken as kind of the the defining ethical stance of Christians. A lot of Christians take that position. But in Deuteronomy, the fact that uh, the Lord prohibits killing murder does not mean that he prohibits war. That's pretty obvious from the opening chapter of Deuteronomy because he's sending them into, Canaan in order to prosecute a war of conquest and to inherit so they can inherit the land that the Lord has promised to them. Uh, and it's clear from throughout the Old Testament that the 10 words, uh, the, the sixth word does not prohibit warfare because God commands warfare. God's involved in warfare. God, uh, uh, Yahweh gives uh, strategies to Israel for warfare. So the sixth word doesn't prohibit warfare, but it does, as, as chapter 20 will show us, it does require that Israel prosecute its wars in a particular way. It prosecutes its wars. It must prosecute its wars in a way that's consistent with God's vision of the abundant life and uh, the life of uh, of peace and justice that He intends for His people in the land. That's contrary to what many believe believers and unbelievers about the Old Testament teaching about warfare. Uh, a lot of people have a general impression that, without studying the Old Testament much at all, have a general impression that the Old Testament is full of vicious warfare, and it's a blood, uh, Yahweh is a bloodthirsty God. He unleashes his people to carry on wars of complete destruction. That's true. He does do that. 
uh, with some of the Canaanite cities because the Canaanites as they're inheriting the land. And the whole Old Testament is just a, uh, a document of bloodthirstiness and total war. What we'll find in chapter 20, though, is that's very much not what God requires of Israel. In fact, most of chapter 20 is about limitations on the way they conduct war, limitations on who, who goes to war. Uh, the first part of the chapter is uh, a series of exemptions. There are certain, certain people that are not required to go to war. Go to war. Uh, one of the effects of this, if you if you got a you know, you've got your company of soldiers that's ready to go to war, and then uh, the commanders come up and they say, well, anyone who comes into this category can go home. Anyone in this category can go home. Anyone in this category can go home. If I have four different categories of people that go home, you're gradually whittling down, you're, you're whittling down the army. It's kind of a Gideon move. Gideon whittles down his army to 300, 300 men, and that's just built into the way Israel is supposed to conduct war which points to the fact that these wars are Yahweh's wars, and he's the one who's going to go with them. He's the one who's going to ensure their victory. They're not to be afraid of their enemies because Yahweh is with them. Even when they're not carrying out the conquest and these wars of, these holy wars of complete destruction, still when they go to war, they uh, go to war with confidence that the Lord is with them. And that means they don't have to go out with the full uh, number of men who qualify for the army. They, they can whittle it down, give it, giving these exemptions. All of these wars are Yahweh's wars, and for Israel, it's a privilege to fight Yahweh's wars for him. Also, the end of chapter 20, we'll find another limitation on war that's uh, uh, they're not to to make war against the land or the productive plants in the land. There are limitations on what they can do. There's no there's no permission of total war, even even when they're uh, even when they're carrying on a war of utter destruction. They don't make war on the land because they're going to inherit the land. Uh, and they're going to cultivate the land. So the accent of chapter 20, although it definitely permits war and in certain circumstances requires Israel to go to war, uh, but the thrust of chapter 20 is the opposite of bloodthirsty. Um, Jeff pointed out in our last episode that the sixth word section of Deuteronomy begins with cities of refuge. That's the first half of chapter 19. And the cities of refuge are an institutional setup to prevent Israel uh, to pre- prevent innocent blood from being shed on the earth. So the first thing that Israel's supposed to do to keep the, the sixth word is to set up something that prevents innocent blood. So uh, it's uh, the accent is on preservation of life, enhancement of life, and even when Israel goes to war, they're supposed to go to war in a way that uh, that carries on the, that vision that uh, and that, that intention that God has for them. But uh, chapter 20 is a little bit in the future. Uh, we did have a, a couple of things in chapter 19 that we wanted to go over. Verse 14 talks about boundary marks, and uh, verses 15 through 21 talk about false witnesses. So we'll start there. So I, I had a suggestion as to what's going on in terms of this um, moving of the boundary marker. So um, obviously the issue of the chapter is um, yeah the, the case of manslaughter. And um, one of the ways in which... Um, presumably a judge is meant to um, decide or the congregation or whoever um, it is, whether the murder has been deliberate um, or not, has to do with hate. And so um, uh, where are we? Verse uh, 11, if anyone hates his neighbour, and or I think earlier it might say has hated him in the past, um, that's clearly an, an indicator that this is deliberate. And that that all seems fine, um, but... I mean, presumably it's it's telling us more than that. Presumably part of the point is that murder itself starts with with hatred. You know, hate, hatred is the um, root sin which kind of allowed to um, conceive and bear fruit and so on comes to its conclusion in um, murder. Murder doesn't just sort of arise out of the blue. And I wonder if um, uh, part of this moving your neighbor's landmark is um is is the kind of thing that we're meant to read in light of that and and in light of the old testament narrative i mean we we could think of um the example of ahab you know his um root sin is is wanting naboth's vineyard you know and and this is a a landmark that god has um established and and naboth says no he says shall i give you the the inheritance which again is mentioned in 
verse 14, the, the inheritance of my forefathers. And interestingly, that sin in Ahab's case grows to conceive and, and uh, give birth to murder and, in fact, to false witnesses um, arising against Naboth. And and so I wonder if there's kind of A, an illusion there and B, just a, a kind of parallel in the sense that life is God's to give or or take away and we we could say the same about the land you know the land is is the lord's and he will divide it between the tribes and between individuals and it, it's not therefore for man to uh uh to start messing around with that i think we could also say building out on what you've just noted james that scripture at several points highlights the progress from an initial condition that excites a particular sin or the spiritual state that gives rise to it. In the case of uh, Ahab, it's the de desiring that neighbor's land. And then in the response of he desires the land, he's miserable about it. Jezebel essentially says, why, has, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Um, and then offers to get the land for him through um, these lies and false witnesses. In the case of Cain, we have a different response where the first state of anger, of um, bitterness towards Abel is noted by the Lord. And the Lord asks him, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? And addresses him with the, the need to deal with that sin, to nip it in the bud. And later on we see that sin bears its fruit and leads to the killing of Abel. Of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, we have a series of different examples of sins that germinate in the heart or are provided with conditions outside that need to be dealt with if you're going to prevent that sin from bearing its fruit. So in the case of, of murder, it's the dispute with the brother that has the anger in the heart that will lead to words of anger and actions um, of violence. And in that case, you reconcile straight away. There's also the example of adultery, where you deal with the sin of adultery by cutting off the hand or cutting out the eye. And it's dealing with the precipitating uh, or the conditions or the precipitating occasion for sin. And here, I think, as you know, there's something similar going on. There's the recognition that so much violence arises from a failure to maintain proper boundaries, um, boundaries of land, but boundaries more generally um, between people. And I mean, we can see this in the world today, how much violence occurs over disputed boundaries. And so holding boundaries very carefully is one of the means to prevent the occasions for the sin that will yield its fruit in murder and violence. Yeah, great points, uh, James and Alistair both. Uh, one, I guess, one general way to put uh, to summarize the points that you've made is that uh, for Deuteronomy and for the law in general, there's not a uh, an unbridgeable line between property and person. So attacks on property may lead to attacks on person, but attacks on property are actually forms of murder or attempted murder. So you you move your uh, neighbor's boundary mark. Presumably, this is some kind of fraud. And I think it's maybe analogous to uh, false weights and measures. You're trying to purchase a larger piece of property for less than it's worth or uh, reduce the size of the property by moving a boundary mark or something along those lines. Uh, there's a kind of fraud that's that may be implied here. That's at, at least one possible case. Uh, and that's not just a, a, a sin against the, the the property itself, but is a sin against the person who is owner of the property, because the property is a kind of extension of their person. And that's very uh, in a in a society like Israel's. That's very uh, directly the case, because the uh, property that they own is the source of their life. If you if you attack the land of an Israelite, you're attacking what is uh, normally uh, the life-sustaining resource that he has. Uh, so you are, in fact, very directly attacking his life. So this commandment here is really just about loving your neighbor. 
Uh, I think James originally started with the reference back up in verse 11. If anyone hates his neighbor and attacks him, well, this is just you shall not move your neighbor's landmark. That's another way of hating your neighbor, not loving your neighbor. So the poet Robert Frost, uh, good fences make good neighbors. Um, there's a respect you have for not just your neighbor's person, as you were saying, Peter and Alistair, but for his property. Um, there's a there's a connection there, a man's property, a man's person, and respecting that, those boundaries is an act of love. I made this uh, observation in, in other connections. I may have done it on the podcast. I don't remember. But I think that you, you think about the way that, and, we, and feel like we've talked about this uh, in our Deuteronomy series, in fact, uh, you think about the effect that theft, a seizure of property has psychologically on the person who owns it. We can kind of rationalize that and say, well, somebody steals the music system from my car or something, you know, something from removes it from my car. Uh, I can say, well, you know, it was, it was just stuff, but it feels like an attack on the person. Uh, somebody, somebody invades your house. Uh, somebody arranges things uh, so that you get cheated out of a, a land purchase or a land sale which is uh, you know, a kind of a generalized way to talk about the moving of boundary markers, that you feel like you have been you have been assaulted. It's not just the it's not just the property, but you yourself feel connected to that. Simple illustration of that, a few years ago, maybe five years ago now, I put up a fence in my backyard, mostly for the dog, but in putting up the fence, talk with my neighbor, and we got out there and we were looking at things about where the fence would be and we couldn't find the markers. And he was a little concerned that I was going onto his property. Um, and I, I, at first I kind of took that as what, what you don't trust me or you think I'm trying to steal from you. But once we got the surveyor out and found out where the property line was, there was, everything was peaceful and, and we're good friends, my, my neighbor and I. And so, but that, that, just putting up a fence there led to some conflict uh, because he took it personally. And so, Peter, I think what you say makes a lot of sense. As, as long as you didn't start using an axe to cut up the fence, Jeff, I'm, I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah. And as Alistair says, uh, conflicts, both petty conflicts and uh, large scale, uh, large scale world threatening conflicts uh, often happen as boundary dispute, boundary disputes, border disputes. Uh, there, and that's a that's a, that's a common scenario that you described, yeah. Jeff. That uh, uh, neighbors get into conflicts and become estranged from one another because of those kinds of boundary disputes. Yeah. Now, the other interesting thing about this passage is this phrase, uh, which the men of old or which the earlier men have set. This there seems to be something forward-looking uh, in this just this little verse here, this little provision in the law. Uh, looking forward to a time when uh, somebody might forget or what the uh, or what where the boundaries are or someone might easily <clears throat> want to rearrange things because you know this was done a long time ago um, and I just find that interesting too and a lot of Deuteronomy is like that because when you get in the land but this is even beyond when you get in the land this is after you've been for a while and so ancestors you know earlier have put boundaries there be careful you don't move those because uh, that would be that would not be a loving thing to do for you with your neighbor the last section of this chapter uh, beginning of verse 15 through 21 is about witnesses Bearing false witness, of course, comes up later on in the 10 words as part of the ninth word, but this is uh, witnesses from the perspective of the sixth word. So we're thinking in terms of the ordering of order of witnesses, the requirement for two witnesses being an application of uh, the command, thou shalt not kill. We've seen, I uh, don't remember where we saw this before, but we saw the same rule about witnesses come up in another context. So uh, that's one of the, one of the uh, interesting features of the Torah. You have uh, similar commandments or even identical commandments that come up in repeatedly in different kinds of contexts uh, and are given different kind of spin and flavoring depending on 
what the setting is in which they're they're arrived. Here, it's a witness of violence is what's particularly in view. That's verse 16's phrase. If you have a witness of violence that rise up against a man uh, and charges him with wrongdoing, uh, then uh, that has to be adjudicated before the priests and the judges. That sounds like before the central sanctuary. And when something can't be, it's presumably it's something that can't be determined by uh, maybe local elders investigating. They can't determine whether the uh, you have a a, a witness of violence who is accusing somebody of somebody something, and you can't determine whether the accusation is true. Uh, then it's taken before the Lord, verse 17 says, and submitted to the priests and the judges at the central sanctuary. And so there's this kind of divine scrutiny that comes into play that uh, resolves that resolves that problem. I think, just I haven't looked into this, but just listening to your comments, I think there are probably some translational issues in verse um, 16. So this like, um, uh, I think you had like Ed Hamas as witness of violence, whereas um ESV has if a malicious witnesses uh, witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing and um I mean to my mind that would fit the preposition quite nicely like Ed Hamas Bay like a, a, a malicious witness against a man but um is is that I, I did is, what are you using Peter uh that's the uh Lightheart standard version there. Uh, no, I thought so. <laughs> witness of violence. Uh, yeah, and it, that's not the translation that I have in front of me. Malicious witness is what I have in my in my ancient NASB. Oh, I see. Okay, I thought when you were explaining it, you were saying that um, it's not clear that he's malicious, um, but but you're you're, you're not saying. Oh, that then. oh no no, that's I was not saying that. I was saying, yeah, he, definitely a malicious witness, but. The phrasing has Hamas. Gotcha. Interesting, yeah. interesting contemporary reference. Hamas, which means violence. So it's a witness of violence. Uh, he's not a witness who has observed or witnessed violence. I think it's a witness who wants to use his witness in order to do violence, which is what brings this under the ninth word. Right. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, he's he's a false witness who's trying to enlist the enlist the courts to do damage to somebody that he hates. Yep, yep. Um, I mean, I, I was struck like you, Peter, uh, uh, the um, way in which this um, uh, issue with false witnesses has arisen before. So I think it's in chapter 17 to do with um, serving other gods. And I mean, and actually, even aside from that, we've had it elsewhere that people are to kind of search out diligently what has happened when a case is brought, uh, brought before them. And it just sort of seems to me to underscore the general point that while there is this specific commandment you know not to bear false witness in a sense the whole of the law is kind of underlying uh underlying underlain by that as a principle because until you've actually established the truth of a matter you can't come to any decent conclusion as to what should be done in order to put this thing right you know who should pay what um penalty or be punished in in what way and um i mean it feels to me that we are particularly with you know the rise of instant news and social media and whatever we're increasingly in a world where the factual report of something and the judgment against it you know the condemnation of it the expression of outrage um i mean at best come out at the same time and at worst just get blurred together in this hopeless um muddle you know and and it just seems a very um poignant reminder that kind of in, in our minds when we're dealing with things or, or forgetting about in our minds you know dealing with um issues in churches or or whatnot you know first we need to establish the the facts and get kind of reliable witnesses and, and get a reliable view of, of of the matter before anything else has has been done at all yeah, a, yeah, great point. I want to come back to that in just a second. Uh, one one thing I, I wanted to link up this uh, this rule, this law uh, that uh, con- condemns and warns against witnesses of violence, witnesses who want to do violence with their witness, uh, link it up with the rules that uh, prohibit bribery. In both cases, you have attempts to use a political system or legal system in order to accomplish private ends. 
So a man with a lot of money bribes the judge in order to give him a favorable verdict against somebody who doesn't have as much money. And if you have a system that's corrupted by bribery, then you have a system where the wealthy can get their way uh, and those without resources are going to be on the on the short end and going to be uh, abused in, in a system where money has that kind of sway over the legal system. In this case, you have uh, a different sort of pressure on the legal system, and that is violence. It's not violence threatened to the judge, but it's a witness that's attempting to use a judicial process in order to damage and do violence to a neighbor. So it's a, it's a species of attempted murder in a sense with the court system as kind of the murder weapon. The, the, what the, what the malicious witness wants to do is to eliminate his, the target of his false witness. And he wants to use a court system to accomplish that. And the point I wanted to come back to with your comments, James, was that I thought of social media in a somewhat different way here, where you have, uh, in a sense, the the attempt to use the court of public opinion in order to murder uh, another's reputation, you know, spreading slander about somebody on social media. I mean, it happens in churches. You have slanders uh, that. Uh, begin to percolate through churches through the gossip network that exists in almost every church. Uh, and you have a, an attempt at, at using not a, not a strictly a, a judicial system, but a kind of, a kind of court, uh, the court of public opinion or the court of reputation uh, and somebody trying to use that to damage another person. So yeah, I think this is a yeah, pervasive problem, not just in legal systems, but in uh, public discourse generally. Uh, I think uh, James, made reference to this also that they have to inquire diligently about the matter now that places a requirement a on the family or on the 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 parties that are involved in these cases to be patient and to let the priests and the judges actually uh, investigate and come to some conclusion uh, that's a very hard thing to do as you were saying Peter and and, and and also James, in today's world, when we expect kind of instantly the results, and people latch on to things, and just cannot wait until the investigation has been done. And sometimes investigations take a good bit of time. Um, I, I and I, I find myself just as a churchman uh, involved in presbyteries and involved in judicial commissions over the years. Sometimes I just I get a little frustrated and I get a little angry that so much of my time is taken up investigating something that's happening in this church between two people or between a session and a member or whatever. And I just need to remember that the investigation takes time and effort and pages and pages of description so that you come to the right decision. And then often afterwards, after that's finished and you have, you know, 25 pages, single spaced of the results of your investigation and your conclusion and the judgment that's rendered by the commission, people don't want to read that. <laughs> they don't want to go through it. And they just have this visceral response to your judgment uh, according to, you know, how they feel or how they thought it, it should have been handled. Um and, and again, we're we're back to the verse twenty one, is you know, your individual feelings about things need to be subordinated to the uh, judgments of the priests and the judges and the investigation they've done, um, and, and and that's that's also a very important principle in in the modern world, and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of submission these days to investigations and to the results of investigations. Part of this is maybe what we might call the principle of subsidiarity, that we recognize the proper agencies to litigate certain matters. And increasingly, when everything becomes a matter of public discourse, there's this expectation that we all should be speaking upon every single matter that comes across our um, feed and everything that comes to our attention. But many matters, we just do not have the facts at our disposal. We do not know the relevant parties. We have not been privy to all the relevant 
information a witness. And so we really should refrain from casting any sort of judgment. What we should do is encourage and and provide the conditions for the integrity and the um the judgment of those who do have a position and the capacity to execute proper justice. And this, I think, is an especial challenge when we do have the power to take matters into our own hand, to gainsay judges in the court of public opinion, and to act with little reference or concern for um, the proper agencies. That, I think, is something that can work both going up and going down. Um, There are many situations that need to be dealt with locally, should not be blown up to international or national or um, large-scale issue. And there are many issues that need to be dealt with by proper higher authorities, and lower authorities should submit those to um, the authorities that have the competence to judge them. And that is particularly difficult when we feel that we are in a position to judge all sorts of matters. And even if we do not have the competency, that we are expected to cast judgment and to do so in a way that even though we might not be doing this just individually, collectively has a great effect in um, prejudicing the acts of justice. Yeah, and two specific specific dimensions of that. Uh, One is you have uh, the problem that both uh, you, Alistair, and Jeff talked about trying to trying to have a deliberation uh, and having a, a considered judgment about a matter uh, that's undermined or there's erosion of that when you have everything is polarized and put immediately into this pro anti kind of binary that, you know, you say a, a thing in favor of X, then you must be against Y and it gets uh, immediately put into that kind of polarizing framework. And then there's a, a worrying trend that I see in uh, in Christian circles. Uh, it's kind of a war on nuance. The nuance is for losers, weaklings, boomers. And uh, if you're trying to qualify and come to a considered conclusion about something, uh, rather than uh, a soundbite conclusion, then you're then you're you're accommodating to the system. You're part of the you're part of the problem. Uh, and that's just you know that's just immature. That's infantile to to think that you can engage a complex world uh, without being able to say on the one hand and on the other uh, and uh, recognizing the complexities of issues. That doesn't mean that we should let complexities rule out the need for clear judgments when when we can make them and when we need to make them. There are certainly times to do that, but there's a, a just a general hostility to considered, careful, nuanced opinion that's been uh, spreading, partly, I think, because of social media, partly because <laughs> useful voices are amplified by social media, uh, immature voices are amplified by social media, uh, and our media landscape in general. And that makes it uh, very difficult to to do what Jeff was describing and have any, uh, have any purchase from it. And I think there's yeah. also the fact that beyond youthful and immature voices, the competent uh, authoritative official voices are usually limited in what they can say publicly precisely because they're dealing with issues responsibly yeah that's true and then also you add to this the distrust of authorities of institutions of academic institutions of elitists and so nuances associated with elitism with uh university academics um with uh, government officials and so when trust is eroded then um where do you go or who do you trust well you trust yourself uh the it here the interesting thing here is that you you appear before yahweh and yahweh is represented by the priests and the judges they mediate the lord's judgment that is if they're faithful um but you have a, a confusing situation today where truly many of those that are in authority and in establishment uh, university stuff are are not trustworthy. Um, and so everything, 
everything is is uh, a mess. Um, everything's a huge mess. I had I had a question um, to do with the very last verse of this chapter. So, um, your eye shall not pity. I, I think kind of perhaps it was Jeff last time around who said that this had a sort of legal um, uh, feel to it. You know, to your your not to show mercy but to enact um strict justice I, i'm pretty sure the lord says repeatedly in um uh ezekiel uh, my eye will not have pity anymore you know the the lord has, has had enough with with israel and is, is now going to exile them um but afterwards it says it shall be life for life eye for eye tooth for tooth you know we, we've we've had this before obviously in um exodus where it's got a um a very clear sense because it's talking about you know if you knock a, a um slave's tooth out or something then the payment is going to be proportional to that here it seems slightly more difficult to contextualize because it seems that basically what's being demanded here is just a life for a life and, and so i i'm i i'd be keen to know what what you guys kind of make of this contextually and what it's trying to do this last verse is your question why why does it, say, it just say your eyes shall not pity it shall be life for life period why yeah exactly it, exactly that yeah yeah why is there eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot yeah yeah well i think that uh if you look at one of the more even more extended statements of the lex talionis back in Deut uh, sorry exodus 21 this is a men struggling strike a woman with child so that she has a miscarriage. And if there is further injury, verse 23 says, you shall appoint a penalty, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, bruise for burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. I think that's the most extended statement of this principle that's found in the pen in the Torah. But that's it, it's the same phenomenon that you have uh, life for life or soul for soul would be adequate to dis to describe well, I guess maybe this I'm 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 beginning to correct myself in some degree because you might have injury that's not a life injury but some other sort of injury, but you still have burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Those seem the the burn parts. It seems to be moving beyond the immediate context. So I guess I I was what I was going to say. I'm not sure it actually works with Exodus 21 now that I have read it out loud. Uh, what I was going to say is that this principle seems to be elevated out of the context and being brought into play in the context uh, as a uh, as a general principle of justice, a kind of uh, a uh, symmetry in uh, a punishment to wrongdoing. Uh, and I'm I, I'm not sure in either case it's fully linked with the context. Yeah, I think maybe you're overreading it, um, James. If I could put it that way, because back in fifteen, it's any crime, any wrong. Any offense. Um, so a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, not just murder. Um, it might seem like when you get down to verse 20 and, you, and you're going to purge the evil, verse 19, you're going to purge the evil person from your midst, uh, that that's speaking of execution. But it seems like this, these laws, this law here is about more than just murder, uh, although it includes murder. So that whatever the malicious witness wanted to do to uh, his neighbor is going to be done to him. Uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of scenario do we have in mind uh, where something like tooth for tooth would be? So the malicious witness claims that he makes a false charge that somebody has done damage to somebody else, uh, damaged somewhat some other person's, maybe his own, done, done uh, bodily harm to him. Turns out that's not the case. So does that mean he gets additional bodily harm? Because what he wanted to do, he said, this guy knocked out my tooth. Find out that the guy did knock out his tooth. So instead of the accused having a tooth knocked out, the accuser gets a tooth knocked out, maybe a second tooth knocked out. Is that the kind of thing? So the Lex Talionis says that we're doubles down on the on the accuser. Is that is that the scenario that we're looking at? I mean, wouldn't the issue be kind of more proportionality? So if he's um, 
claim is to do with something the the value of a tooth then kind of he should have to pay something in proportion to that i mean it's i guess easily um thought about if you you know if if he's claimed that i don't know one of his cattle has been stolen perhaps he's going to have to pay a a cattle back or, or there are sort of some clear cases like that and maybe you can like generalize upwards from from there or something and um, rather than sort of going and starting to knock knock other people's teeth out and stuff <laughs> yeah i would i, I was uh, being too literalistic with my tooth illustration but i mean yeah. i guess i guess what i was coming to is the question of whether what we're looking at is a kind of recoil of the lex talionis because you know if if you kill somebody and uh you're convicted of that then you get you get executed so they're life for life there's one killing of the innocent victim there's another killing of the murderer uh but this seems to be one where the false witness accuses of something that didn't actually happen and so that accusation recalls back on him and if he actually has suffered some loss but is accusing somebody else of doing it to him then it it does seem like there's this kind of doubling down on the accuser what's the yeah, problem so he, well, nothing i'm just asking if that's the if that's the dynamic i do have a follow-up to that but so you know the the claim uh this guy stole my cow turns out he didn't steal a cow maybe maybe the cow still never got lost maybe he lost a cow and accused somebody of, of having a cow stolen so he loses he's lost one cow accused the wrong guy then he loses a second cow so that's the follow-up is that I've, I've used that kind of doubling of the lex talionis as a way of thinking about the way that Jesus talks about the lex talionis, but it goes in the other direction because, um, you know, if, if you receive one slap, instead of slapping back, you offer your other cheek to receive the second slap. So there's an, and that's in the context of Jesus talking about eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But in that case, it's the, it's not the perpetrator who gets, uh, who gets a double, a double whammy, but it's the, the victim who receives a double whammy. He kind of absorbs the slap that by the strict lex talionis should be carried out on the person who originally slapped. So there's a, there does seem to be in both cases, there's a kind of doubling of a doubling of harm, but the more redemptive action that Jesus calls for is accepting that doubling of harm on ourselves. Yeah. So the demands of the law are paid, but just not on the perpetrator. Yeah. Right. One of the interesting things that this raises is that, I mean, we we do um, probably all resonate with the general principle that this raises in verse twenty one. You know that that justice should be proportional. You know, and and obviously this is something that people are talking about a, a great deal at the moment with events in, in Israel and Gaza. Um, and yet, while it's spoken about a lot, as if it's this kind of very um, self explanatory idea, it it's actually a very hard thing to put into practice. You know, I mean, I, I think probably we would all accept that, you know, if Israel went into Gaza and found a small village about the size of Sterot and kind of raped about the same number of women that the Gazans had raped Israelis, that that wouldn't really be justice, you know. And, and so while we kind of grasp this idea that... It, justice should be proportional um it, it's it's easy to say and and but actually very hard to um cash out in practice quite often yeah i, I completely agree with that as in general uh, and particularly in complicated international situations like you described uh, i think uh, i'm gonna echo what jeff said uh, i didn't want to let this pass with without further comment that the the punishment for false witness the punishment for perjury here is that the perjurer receives the penalty that he intended that would have gone to the uh, accused if the accusation had been true so if the false witness deliberately maliciously accusing somebody of uh, of a crime that would be punished by uh, by uh, a loss of property he loses the property so there is a principle of proportionality that's built into this particular scenario but that's yeah you're right that in in many many cases that's the it's not nearly as straightforward what uh, what a proportional response looks like or proportional justice looks like don't you think that this 
um, applying this, you, you apply this in the same way, as you mentioned, maybe it was last podcast, Peter, about uh, the commandments, thou shalt not kill. Well, you don't know what thou shalt not kill is until you look at how it's um, fleshed out in the rest of scripture. It doesn't mean you can't execute a man for murder. It doesn't mean you can't go to war, those kind of things. So looking at how eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot is worked out in the rest of scripture, you don't see uh, the kind of thing that James is talking about. You know, if, if uh, somebody rapes my wife, then I'm going to go rape his wife or something like that. Um, it's it's more the the uh, the equivalence, you know, the notion of judicial equivalence or a penal equivalence is worked out in different ways, like ransom prices, or you have to go and become an indentured servant to the man or, or things like that. Um, the only time where this is literal, and I'm going back to numbers 35 here, when you, the only crime that you cannot receive a ransom for, or, or the judges can't decide to um, impose a, a penalty, like a financial penalty or something like that, is murder. You, you, you can't, you have to take the life of the murderer. Everything else is negotiable. And I think that's what you see as this is fleshed out in the rest of Scripture, in the Hebrew Scriptures. I want to point to a, a couple of details in the latter part of chapter 19. I use the phrasing of attempted murder, you know, attempting to use the court system to commit murder. As Jeff pointed out, that's not the only kind of scenario that's being covered here. But I think the there are a couple of echoes of the previous section of the chapter. So verses 11 through 13 talk about murder. And the one who commits murder has to be executed. Uh, verse 13 says, you shall not pity him. That command not to pity is repeated in verse 21 concerning the malicious witness. And then you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel. Uh, and that um, language is echoed in verse 19. You shall purge the evil from among you. That's not necessarily blood that's been shed, but purging evil. So there's a, there's a connection between the punishment that's prescribed for murderers and the punishment that's prescribed for perjurers. So that uh, that's the exegetical basis, I guess, for talking in terms of attempted murder. Uh, certainly attempted harm. A, a witness of violence is trying to do violence uh, of some sort, damage his neighbor, or as verse 14, our discussion of verse 14 points out, trying to damage his neighbor's property, uh, using the court system to do that. Uh, both of those are uh, linked up with the uh, with the punishment of uh, the murderer in the early part of the chapter. Uh, so often, Jesus, you mentioned Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Peter, and eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And I think it was an interesting application of, of uh, or an extension of, of this principle here, a, a reversal in, in, some, in some ways. Christopher Wright, in his commentary, makes, I think, a helpful, very helpful, especially in our context, in our world, comment here about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and how this relates to the Lex Talionis, for example. He says this, he was saying, Jesus was saying that the principle governing legal decisions in court cases, which was the legitimate goal of strict equivalence, should not be taken as the model for all behavior in personal relationships and attitudes. It was possible to suffer wrong without seeking personal or legal retaliation and to extend generosity even to one's enemy. I think that comment that these legal principles here outlined in Deuteronomy 19, as le they're legitimate, they're helpful, and they govern decisions in court cases, but that shouldn't be the model for all behavior in personal relationships, especially in our day and age when there's so much litigious uh, behavior, uh, uh, verbiage, uh, whether it's online or, or anywhere. It, it, uh, I think Christians need to remember that there's a place for litigation in the courtroom, but not everything in life um, should be litigated or um, needs to be, uh, you don't need to follow this strict kind of eye for eye, tooth for tooth in your personal dealings with everyone. Uh, something may happen would 
require you or even encourage you to go to law, go to the court and to pursue legal redress. Okay, that's fine. But not everything does. Um, And I think that needs to be remembered, especially in our daily relationship with others. It seems to me the um, penultimate verse and the rest shall shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you is a very important principle. When we see the way that the law can go wrong, whether that's through people, litigious people bringing forth um, all these cases against other people when they shouldn't, or false witnesses or situations where people are um, enacting or bringing certain laws against, officials are bringing laws against people that are unjust or um, executing the law in a way that is not faithful to the actual law. If there is not some deterrent against that, the actual um, vicious use of the law can itself become a deterrent. I think we've seen this a lot in the ways that certain forms of policing within our societies of Christian expression has been... The Christians who have been persecuted by certain um, legal actions against their speech or against their um, behavior, they may have been vindicated in the courts, but the fact that those sorts of court cases could be brought against them has a chilling effect upon everyone else. No one wants to step near that line anymore. And so unless there is something to act against the malicious use of the courts, the malicious um, application of the law, the unjust use of um, policing, unless there are things to act against that, the law can actually have a very negative effect, even when people are vindicated in the courts. And so having something that deals with situations like this of malicious witness is incredibly important. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.